Hey folks, in case you missed it, the single barrels have started rolling in. Both barrels of the Jack Daniels Single Barrel Barrel Proof Rye are available through Hudson Wine Market, with direct links in my social media pages and Instagram bio. These also went out to patrons with a special discount code. These barrels have been going so quickly that honestly, I don't even know if they're going to be any left by the time this is posted. So if they are available and you want them, trust me, don't wait because someone else is going to grab them first. Next up is the Barrel Rye finished in Armagnac casks. This is going live on October 2nd. This incredible pick was done in partnership with the guys at This Is My Bourbon Podcast. The Timbip guys are great friends, and I'm thrilled to have this barrel come into the shop. On October 2nd, Patreon members of both podcasts will have first dibs with free shipping for Patreon supporters. No limits, no minimums, free shipping for Patreon supporters. So up your Patreon pledge now if you want to grab them before everyone else and get that free shipping code. Just want to take a quick second. Thank you so much. From the bottom of my heart, thank you to all the supporters, especially my friends on Patreon. You've put a ton of investment into the pod and the site through the years. And as these single barrels start rolling out and additional products start rolling out, I'll keep providing as many perks as possible to those who have supported me along the way and continue to join. If you're not a patron, if I was on the outside, sounds like now's the time to join. All right, enough updates. Now on to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey, Whiskey Ringers. Welcome to a very special episode of the Whiskering Podcast. Today I am on site in Kentucky, in Bardstown, recording just before heading over to the Kentucky Bourbon Festival, and I am thrilled to be sitting here with Lisa Wicker. You know her from brands from, I mean, from Limestone Branch to Widow Jane to Pierce Lyons to uh, Samson and Surrey, all over the place. She's made a name for herself in many different areas. And I'm thrilled to welcome her on. Lisa, welcome on. Hi, David. It's so nice to have you in my home here in Bardstown. Yes, actually, Lisa has been gracious enough to let us into her home. Uh, It's a beautiful spot that really, I I can't say enough about it. I just love it. And so here we are. Do you want a glass of whiskey? I shouldn't. I'm so used to doing podcasts with a glass of whiskey. Oh, what the hell? (laughs) I'd actually like your opinion. All right, so now we've got some whiskey in our hands. This is good. <laughs> it's whiskey fest. It's bourbon festival, so yeah. when you ask what's for breakfast, there we go. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah, heavy kind of on black tea and... Black tea, a little bit of cherry, black mm-hmm. cherry. Lots of cherry, yeah. A little, not too astringent, actually. There's plenty of oak on there. Mm-hmm. To me, it indicates maybe, I don't know, between 8 to 10, maybe 12, at, at most, I would say. It's definitely not over-oaked, for sure. Yeah. Maybe one, between the 110 to 115-ish range. Um, very coating. And I, I tend to like a fruitier bourbon anyway, so, and this is right in my Oh, awesome. House. I love to hear this. Yeah. yeah. So, do you want to save the re- reveal on this one for a little later? Um, or, or you can tell me now. That's that's. It may relate to my next project. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so we will we will hold on to that for a moment. No, that's delicious though. I, I think it. so too. That's part of the reason that um, I decided to work with them. There is something familiar about it. So I'm going to let that percolate in the back mm-hmm. of my brain as we talk, and maybe at the end, mm-hmm. um, or after we're recording, I'll yeah. 
throw a few at you okay. and see if I can. So, um, so yeah, so the, the first topic I wanted to get into was just uh, background. So obviously you've done plenty of podcasts, interviews mm-hmm. and such. So uh, if, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know who Lisa is or at least have heard her name, I'm sure. If not, you know, get on that. Uh, but the part of your background that really piqued my interest the most was in uh, that you have a journalism degree. Mm-hmm. And a lot of a lot of your roles, in addition to distilling, blending, and such, has involved communication mm-hmm. in one form or another. And it's when you were on with uh, the folks at Beneath the Char, you said that it's a skill to be able to communicate who you are and what you do. So just to start off, you know, as you've gone through your career, how has that communication training journalism degree helped in both consumer facing and internal facing roles? Uh, excellent question. I've never been asked this question before. So I love favorite this. Favorite answer right there. <laughs> I so. love, I love this. Um, it's, I frequently say, I feel like I spent my whole life training for, to be a distiller. So, you know, my whole background, it's like, there's not anything that I would did before I got into winemaking and distilling that hasn't benefited me um, in the long term. My father, I have said this on other podcasts, he raised my sisters and I, he treated us like girls but raised us like boys. We didn't know every nine-year-old girl wasn't getting quizzed on the tools in the toolbox. Mm-hmm. He had certain things he wanted us to learn and then as we got older we realized he didn't want us, he wanted us to be self-sufficient and independent and be able to take care of ourselves. And so that's where a lot of his focus was. So I was always comfortable. He asked you know, us to take shop classes when we were in junior high school. In high school, took drafting, small engines. Um, and, you, and you still have all job. your fingers, so <laughs> it's <been> okay. <laughs> there, there, absolutely, I do, but you know, it, it, there was a couple close calls. There's still to this day a couple close calls here and here. But he, uh, yeah, so I had that basis. I should have studied science in college. Um, I'm old enough that, and you know, there were pockets of places where women were allowed to, you know, not, I shouldn't say allowed, well, I guess I should say allowed to study math or science. And then there's other places, you know, people were discouraged and I was shy and was just, you know, sort of turned off of chemistry and things by a high school chemistry teacher. And it's so interesting how one person can influence you down the wrong way. But um, myself and two other women, you know, that I graduated from high school with, we used to wait outside the chemistry room door for the chemistry teacher to get done telling the guys like how to prepare for the chemistry test and we would stay stand there and wait for their leftovers one of them she was valedictorian of class and went on to harvard so we weren't the dumbest people in the class by far right, right. but you know it really it it's it's crazy how that in, will influence you so i ended up studying journalism i loved journalism i was writing during high school thought you know i'd be the next you know person at national geographic or something like that you know those secret pipe dreams right and and absolutely absurd when i look back on it but so i i studied journalism there had some health issues um you know some something that was rather serious and so interrupted you know my education at different times and then um went into started working in a biology lab while i was still in school um Mm -hmm. did their technical writing for them started with doing their photography um it was in a drosophila lab so fruit flies right and about their reproductive proteins was this you know the specific studies there but i you know they started having me work as a lab assistant i was doing the photography i was doing 
uh, the writing. I'm going to tell how old I am here because um, I was working for the chairman of the department. He got the first PC on the Indiana University campus, and so I was trained nice. to use that for my word processing back mm -hmm. in the day. Um, and then got married, moved to Columbus, moved to Connecticut briefly, moved to Columbus, Georgia. I worked for a while with Fairchild Aircraft. Um, doing technical writing there as well um, until I was expecting my first child and had to bow out because of health had some health things kept me from working for a little while mm. but um, so that has served me well I mean you know when you're writing SOPs or you know whatever for in the plant um, you know all that technical writing with has you know definitely come in handy at times mm. everything from writing back labels tasting notes all the things, right? It's amazing how much you get into distilling and you're called upon to take care of some things that, you know, if you're like, think, oh, I'm gonna be a distiller, it's like, oh, writing. I wouldn't have thought that was gonna be in the same wheelhouse with everything else. So, you know, it served me well. Um, you know, I've been able to, um, like you said, communicate and be able to, you know, write some things that actually have some polish to them, you know, for help, for help with marketing and Public relations. It's a, in my opinion, a, a, an incredibly undervalued skill, just to be able to communicate in that way. I know, look, I'm I'm very much in the science of whiskey. I love talking about the eugenols and the guaiacols for a rye and the beta glucans for. I'm on a very rye state of mind today, I guess, for a bourbon <laughs> festival. But um, you know, being able to figure out why those things right. are, why it creates the net when you're mashing and fermenting, and inevitably goes over the top for every person who tries to make a rye. But at the same time, uh, it's just so much easier and it makes more sense to say, okay, it's not usual clove or guayacol. Okay, black pepper, you know, 4VG, different type of black pepper. And um, just be able to communicate in White pepper, notes. green pepper, black pepper. Yeah, little pink peppercorn or <laughs> Szechuan when it numbs, yes. you know. And it, and when you when you taste those peppercorns or things like that, it, it really is very specific and the Szechuan in particular is so numbing across the first half of your tongue but then the back of the tongue so you can still taste things and that's a very unique flavor and whenever you have something so unique it's valuable to put that in a tasting note as I'm sure you know because it's it's more than just saying with bourbon you can say brown sugar caramel vanilla every time you know and you get a little tired of saying the same thing so Finding those different notes, yes. the yes. the manuka honey or the orange blossom honey, something like that. I used to ask our marketing people, one person in particular, and I'm like, "What did I write last time?" <laughs> right. right? I'm reviewing this. I have to write the notes on the same whiskey again. Mm -hmm. um, so, and sometimes it would come out 90% the same because it's the same whiskey, right? Sure. But you know, you're always trying to dig a little bit. I'm like, "Oh, I can dig deeper than that. Let's dig deeper than that this time." Absolutely, and I encourage people to do that during tasting. Mm -hmm. like once once you've gotten that initial. Uh, I don't know what do you call it the initial exploration into whiskey and you really get okay these are the basic flavors then try to parse out okay if you get something that's sweet is it sugar is it honey is it fruit sweetness what right. kind of sugar what kind of honey and yeah. as the more you keep digging down the more mm. exciting it is and the more fun it can be too because that, that's when the scent memories really start kicking yeah. in yes that's the best back in the day when i was making some moonshine for um you know for commercial clients, right? I actually did a sugar tasting and there's such a distinct difference between beet sugar and cane sugar and yeah. and even in cane sugars, who's producing it? 
is it one of the higher quality ones? It's a lower quality one. You know, you can taste almost some of the, chem you know, you can taste almost a chemical taste in some of the cheaper, lesser, you know, cane sugars. Right. As, you know, it's so it's fascinating when you start breaking it apart. Yeah, and as a, I mean, as a writer, I like to use it, but as a consumer too, I appreciate it because that's where you, if you're looking at the back of a bottle or the front, depending right. on where the, the tasting notes are sometimes, you want to know what's a little bit different. What do you expect to get out of this? And I, as a consumer, really appreciate when brands and distillers put that effort in to differentiate themselves. Because, you know, a lot of people, the vast majority really, are not the nerdy ones like us who <laughs> are doing the back. They're going to a liquor store, they see the bottle that's the most attractive or something, and then they, they'll buy it in the right price range. So it, it's appreciated because it's also not necessary. And that extra step, I think, makes a big difference. Oh, absolutely. It doesn't. It's, you know, you just hope to, you're going to spark somebody to look up your brand. Exactly. Like, oh, they took it home. Like, oh, this is, this is pretty tasty. Right. And like, oh, well, I'm just sitting here. Let me, you know, let me Google it and see what I can find out about the brand. And, you know, it, I think it certainly helps, you know, whiskey's got a culture that I don't think any other spirit has. You see a little mm -hmm. bit of it in some other spirits, but not to the degree. Um, you and I were talking before we started this interview just mm -hmm. about the camaraderie and the everything, and it was reflected. Everybody wants to put the best juice they possibly can on the market. Mm -hmm. Is there competition? Absolutely. But do you want to see everybody succeed? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like your competition to put somebody else out of business. It's like, how yeah. far can we raise the bar, mm -hmm. right? That guy's, you know, this guy or this woman's, I say guy because I'm a Midwesterner. It usually means men and women. So um, that's fine. But you know, I, I do the same thing. So it's okay. <laughs> yeah. So you know, what what are they putting out? It's like, and you're so happy for them when they put something out spectacular. But mm -hmm. then at the same time, you're like, okay, how can I raise my own personal bar? Right? Okay, they just raised their bar. I got to raise mine too. Right? right? And so there's always that drive for perfection and that drive for what can we do better? What can we entertain the customer with? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what is what's going to excite them and make them happy? They're already brand loyal you know what can we add how can we add another label or layer on top of that to um, keep them coming keep them coming back I frequently say when I'm telling talking to a production team or something I'm working with you can always sell the first bottle there's romance in it they visit the distillery you can you know we've had a couple drinks it's like oh my gosh you're with somebody that you you know your best friend or somebody that you love and you're like Oh, this is the so you're into the whole experience, and of course the juice is going to taste spectacular. But you get it home, and you're like, ah, meh, <laughs> right? It's, this isn't exactly what I remember. Mm -hmm. And then you know, but you go from there, and it's like, okay, you want to be sure that they go home and go like, oh, this is every bit as good as I remember it being when I tasted it there. They buy the second bottle maybe as a gift. Like, okay, I enjoyed this enough that I'm going to buy that second bottle and give it to you know my brother-in-law, right? Mm -hmm. And then. The third bottle means that it's a staple on their bar. So I said, always aim for that third bottle. You're absolutely right. And I, I consistently tell people, taste things in the rickhouses and at the distilleries if you can, but never buy because of it. Because it just, as you That's said, everything wise. tastes better on the distillery. It tastes better if you're taking it right out of the barrel in the rickhouse. I mean, of course it's going to taste good. Right. Even the worst stuff is going to taste at least okay in that environment. Yes. It's, just, it's, romant it's like romantic. Said, it's romantic. It's, it's romantic. the romance. Keep the romance alive. Exactly. Right? It's, you're in that environment. You want it to taste good and be good. Um, before I forget, too, I wanted to mention, I, I caught the Dros uh, Drosophila 
writing in the research. And it came out to me only because when I was still doing biochem, uh, I worked in a lab that was mainly focused on yeast, on uh, genetics, but uh, that was led by a, it was led by a husband and wife team. Mm -hmm. The wife focused on yeast, the husband focused on Drosophila. So we, I was constantly helping the writing on both of them because I, I was working in the writing center. I was generally a, a better writer than the um, PhD students because they were, yes. they were used to doing the research and the really technical writing. Yes. So I was in charge of translating that into um, non-technical writing or just for easy, ease of understanding for a lay audience. Yes. So I definitely am very familiar with those fruit flies and they were everywhere and they got into everything. And I was doing all this pre-spell check. So, and I yeah. could learned these brilliant biologists couldn't spell. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. so I had a place, yeah. right? I had it. I was useful and I had a place. <laughs> Look, in working in the writing center, I consistently tell people the, uh, the, it's not about intelligence. I mean, the, some of the smartest people I've ever met could not spell, could not write a sentence. Um, generally, the people who needed most help were uh, engineers and, and scientists because they were used to writing only in multi-multi-syllabic words. And that works for some, but not for all. And in some cases, I found that the uh, ESL students that I was teaching had a better grasp of how to communicate through English than the engineers did. Um, or I should say then, uh, let's say, native-born engineers, if they were both engineers, because the, the engineers just assumed they could speak and that they could talk and write. And the fact was, they couldn't. <laughs> so it was always a rude awakening, and I ended up being in charge of those conversations <laughs> because I learned how to communicate yes, to them. Yes. Like, look, it's okay that you don't. You're working on this. Yes. I'm here to help you. Uh, and... Uh, Continuing just with, with the education theme, uh, one of the things you've mm -hmm. said that you kind of wish you could go back to or that you regret is that uh, you wanted to take more chemistry courses Yes. Uh, when you were in school. And If I could go back and do it all over again, knowing what I was going to do, you know, for the, the second half of my life, um, I would have studied agriculture. Okay. My oldest daughter has a food science degree from Purdue. And when you start, you know, she started talking about her curriculum and what she was doing, it's like, oh, my gosh. You know, I wish that I knew that had existed. I didn't. And, um, you know, but if I could go back, I'd study ag e econ. Mm -hmm. I would study, you know, agricultural science. I'd study something in the ag business because um, it's critical that we have chemical engineers in the industry. But that's already been identified. Right. You know, right. we already know that we need to have some chemical engineers for everything to function um, according to plan. But um, I think agriculture, I mean, we're definitely, you know, we look at corn standards and all of that, but I think agriculture is sort of, it's not missing by any means. It's not identified, but I don't believe that it's identified. And if I was, you know, if somebody came to me and said, and I've had this happen, like if my kid wants to get into distilling, what should they do? And I'm like, well, as an undergrad, they might want to, you know, if they can't get into a direct distilling program, they might want to look at studying agriculture because that's certainly, you know, whether it's, you know, I mean, we're thick into value-added agriculture, right? Yes, you know, very much so. Yeah, I've done some lobbying in D.C. for the fat reduction and things, and they, you know, I was I was a little bit versatile because I could be put in Schumer's office or in McConnell's office. <laughs> so the Kentucky, that's, Kentucky, that's New York value. connection, I mean, yes, that's, and so that's value and being right female, right? You yes. know, it's like, oh yeah, well, I, you know. I, I, <laughs> I have a yeah. place at the table. So, um, but that was, you know, always what you preach over and over again, value added agriculture. People forget that whiskey and wine and beer are all value added agriculture. Exactly. Came out of 
Well, beer and wine kind of natural and then became domesticated and then whiskey and, and spirits mm-hmm. are all just value add and figuring out how to make those into even more potent spirits. Yes, so. I know because you, you focus on marketing and, you know, and production and all of those things. It's like yeah. if there's no farmer behind it, we, we don't have anything, right? right. Yeah. And I've had uh, I've been fortunate to talk to a couple of guests who have had either mm-hmm. agricultural degrees or backgrounds. And I think of, mm-hmm. for example, uh, Colby and Ashley at Frey Ranch. Oh, and, um, yes obviously the guys doing it mammoth and uh the entire ecosystem of rose and rye product and production i yes. should say and the agriculture is coming back in a big way it and, is it's lovely yeah and particularly with even with yeast strains we include yeast strains in there as well but looking at the different strains of corn that you're using for bourbon um the rye, the even the wheats at this point are finally getting some more attention it's not all mm-hmm. soft red winter wheat um which honestly nothing against it i do like that right. kind of wheat but we're getting more exploration of what does a hard wheat do for it? You know, if you include the hulls, what does that do during fermentation and milling and mashing? Mm-hmm. Um, and how is that comparable to, let's say, a barley, which mm-hmm. has a much stronger husk than most of the grains we use here in the U.S. For or, or, I, okay. Let's rephrase that. I would say than the grains we use for American whiskey right, right. in the main part. So if you include the husks and then you end up with a clear or a cloudy wort and mash like all these things happen because of the explorations in agriculture absolutely at the beginning right um, and then you get into the flavor right. compounds and it just keeps geometrically expanding mm-hmm. from there so i i find it fascinating and i completely understand why that would be kind of the way you'd want to go and i should note i have in my notes that it, it clearly didn't hold you back not having those <laughs> uh you know those courses um but to kind of close mm-hmm. the circle on that when you were at UC Davis, mm-hmm. uh, shout out Aggies, because um, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law went there uh, for their PhDs. So uh, when you were at UC Davis, uh, what classes or experience do you look back on there yeah. most fondly? Or with- right. And I was not in any traditional program at UC Davis. Right. So I would do the intensives, right? Because I still had kids at home. And so right. I would save up the money I was making winemaking and I would go out there I have shared this before in a podcast, even to the point of, you know, like sleeping in my rental car to make ends meet. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, the, and to, and to make it happen, but I get out there and it was just so incredible. You know, they'd have yeast intensives, they'd have filtration intensives and you would learn so much from UC Davis because, mm-hmm. but it's also a state of the art, um, facility. And when you're in craft, um, if you're in farm, the farm winery business or craft brewing or distilling, you don't always have a state of the art facility. Sometimes you're, you know, you're inventing your own equipment and trying to figure out how to do things on a shoestring. Sure. But I learned so much from the guys next to me too, right? You know, and then you go to these things. Well, you know, the, the head guy from Gallo sitting next to you, you know, and he's over all the filtration for Gallo wines. And you, you know, you start talking to him like, well, you know, I'm what I'm doing is a, you know, not even a you spill more wine in an hour than I make, you know, than I make. And, um, but you'd learn, you know, you would just, it was just fascinating. Right. And they would like, Oh, you need to look this up or look that up. And, you know, one of, one of the gentlemen had been the head winemaker at Gallo and then had moved to, to uh, treasury. And he invited me to come after one of the classes and, and we go out there, you know, and he's got 30,000 gallon for open, you know, open fermenters in California. You're like, oh, my gosh. And, you know, the cat walks way off the ground, and I guess. And and you're like, oh, my gosh, well, this is intimidating. He's like, no, we do the exact same thing. We just do it on a different scale. So I've had the good fortune, too, of a lot of people like like 
educating me that way too. You know, so like the whole UC Davis thing trickles all the way to there, right? You know, it goes all the way down from, um, so every, every one of those intensive I did was really remarkable. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I got lucky. Uh, Purdue had a lot of things going on as well, especially with their extension program. Dr. Butsky that was there for years. I don't, I don't even, I haven't followed up with him, so I don't know if he's still there. I think he is. Um, and you know, um, Ellie Butts, who had been a food science professor there, I got really fortunate. They were always available and helped helped educate me as well, right? And always turning me onto the right textbook or um, intensive or something that I needed to follow through on. And, you know, so I was able, I, got, I was had the good fortune of patching my education together, but I didn't do it alone. I did it because there are a lot of generous people. Sure, and, and it's a great mix of on the job and through the book trainings. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I am a hands-on learner. So for me, it's been, you know, I've had the remarkable opportunity to go and F everything up here and there and then l learn from my own mistakes. So. I have to do it sometimes. I, yeah. I, I feel you on that one. I do want to jump in for a second. Uh, as we're sipping this bourbon mm -hmm. that Lisa has shared for both of us, it's evolved a bit. Now I'm getting more mm -hmm. kind of semi-sweet chocolate, a little nougat in there. Uh, I thought about kind of a Snickers bar. Mm. On the palate, it's because it's not it's not too too sweet, but definitely that kind of chocolate nougat mix comes oh, out. Oh, I can see that. I think I just I just took another swallow of it. Mm. It's easy to drink. Oh, it's very easy to drink. <laughs> yeah, I still maintain. I think it's it's one sixteen. It is one. Okay, so that one ten to one fifteen mm -hmm. guess, I'll hold mm -hmm. to it. I'll count that as half a point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was impressed. <laughs> yeah, I've, that I've gotten pretty good. To ask me a distillery or like that, I am god-awful at that. I can't, identify, I, can, I can't identify them for the most part. Blind, for some reason, my brain just shuts off with that. So instead, I just mm -hmm. go to, okay, what are the other things that I can pick up? Proof? I actually aid. did better er earlier in my career mm -hmm. with the specific distilleries. Now people are doing so much blending. Yes. And, yeah. you know, for a while, when I, especially when I first came to Kentucky, I'd get on different tears and I would just drink Bean product back to back or Heaven Hill product back to back, mm -hmm. you know, or Four Roses product back to back. Like I'd get on these tears and stay on that for a little while until I knew it, you know, and for a while, you know, you start getting, or at least okay. myself, I'm like, oh, well, I know this pretty well. And all of a sudden, you know, then I start blending and the blends come out. It's like, oh, I can't, <laughs> I can't identify these anymore. Yeah. In a good way. No, I, I in a good way. I completely get that. And then you get into the, mm -hmm. of course, the dusties and the, yes. you know, the pre-fire heaven hill versus the post-fire, and it's. As, as a side note, we I recently shared a bottle with friend of, friends of mine that was a Caden Heads, Heaven Hill bottle. It was twenty-year-old Caden, uh, well, twenty-year-old Heaven Hill, I should say, that was bought by Caden Head, uh, but it was bottled in, no, barreled. It was bottled in twenty seventeen. It was barreled in January of. 1997. So you know it was not Heaven Hill juice right. at that time. And uh, in tasting it, I tasted everyone blind, and we were pretty sure we, you know, we knew it was bourbon, we knew it was right. Kentucky uh, Heritage Distiller, likely. Mm -hmm. And most of us thought it was probably Beam at that point. And just knowing what okay. we know, that's, that's the likeliest source right, right. at that point. Could have been others, but there's a particular note that you get from Beam, like that peanut is usually mm -hmm. the one that's identified. So... That's about as far as I can get as I can identify the notes, but once it comes down to the actual distillery, I just, no. And usually when I'm wrong, it's usually four roses. <laughs> and for whatever reason, it's usually four roses. But um, 
with the notes, it actually leads into another uh, question I had, which was on other podcasts and interviews, you've identified a craft bourbon note. And um, for, mm-hmm. I think at the time of this interview, uh, you were with Widow Jane, mm-hmm. I believe, and uh, you identified it as kind of a burnt corn note mm-hmm. and that it can come from distilling heirloom corns too fast. It can, it can come from too high of a heat when it's, the mash is cooking. Exactly. Right. I right. mean, that's my personal preference, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, um, it th- you'll see it throw a lot of corn oil, and it's, it's actually really pretty to look at because it's almost neon-hued. Right. Right. It's like a, almost a neon orange with some yellow undertones, kind of. It depends on what corn you're using. But sure. but when you cook too hot, in my opinion, everybody's got their own recipe. It's just like grandma's chicken soup, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you cook it too hot, it, it it throws a lot more corn oil, and then that corn oil burns in the still. And mm-hmm. so there's an off waxy note sometimes that mm-hmm. can happen from that, um, but or a burnt movie theater popcorn kind of thing Mm. going on in it right and so you know over and over again i think early on especially for craft distillers i think people were like turned off by that a little bit that um if there's some really the the small barrel whiskeys that have survived the small barrel thing Mm -hmm. is because they're being managed really well and that's the whole thing about small barrels they just have to be managed you can't just put whiskey in them and just leave them alone and you have to be able to check on them and you know evaluate them and and know what know which turns they're getting ready to take um and like i said the people that are turning that those fabulous whiskeys out is because they were doing it right in the beginning um there were, everybody else has fallen off of that right you know and gone right. back to 53s or whatever so you have that burnt corn oil note if you decided you're going to start using heirlooms right mm-hmm. and then you have a small barrel and then you've got kind of a yeah. recipe for yeah, you got interesting the, whiskey. The titanic flavors, none of which go together, all cramming together. Yeah. Yes, and as I said, I've learned everything because I've you know messed everything up when I was distilling for Ted Huber at Starlight. You know, but was one of the days that I realized that it's like, oh my gosh, I'll be you know, and it's because I forgot to set the timer on my phone or my back pocket turned it off, mm-hmm. um, and I was working on something else, and also not paying close enough attention in the mash cooker, the temperature dropped. And guess what? I had the best conversion I'd ever had. And I had to look at it again. I looked at it again. I ran the refractometer, you know, Ted and I are old winemakers. So, you know, we're, so I'm running it up to him and he's like, what am I looking at? I'm like, I know, come back with me. I said, I feel like I'm doing something wrong because this is such a good conversion. And sure enough. And he's, He's like, what'd you do? And I'm like, I messed everything up. I lost track of the time and lost track of the temperature and we went colder and longer and came out with a better product and higher conversion, but also better tasting whiskey. Yeah. With the, with the corn oil mm-hmm. note, let's mm-hmm. say someone's mm-hmm. making a batch of whiskey, of bourbon right. even, and they do it too high, too fast, mm-hmm. right. and you get that note. Is that a note that can be um, either hidden or will do you detract over mm-hmm. time, or is it just there? My, my mentor is a gentleman named Dave Sherrick, and mm. Dave's the guy that put Woodford back together. He'd been at Seagram's Wild Turkey, right? And he is a walking encyclopedia of, of whiskey knowledge. Everybody in the industry knows Dave well, and his name should be out there more than it is. And um, he's always bad in, bad out. <laughs> you know, he's got a lot of his um, most important instructions down to just a few words, but bad in, bad out. But it doesn't mean it can't be blended out. 
I mean, you're not you're not losing that note, but you can you know you can balance those things, and that's where blending comes in, you know. Um, and in fact, some of those sometimes every once in a while, one of those funky weird notes is one of the is what will elevate a whiskey that's a little bit bland. Um, and so if you could balance it, um, you know, use like vanilla extract in a cake to mm. make it taste a little bit better. Sure. And then um, I hope. Um, somebody that I worked with is listening to this now because they're like, well, now when you do that, when you harvest only a partial barrel, you need to put the rest of it in stainless. Like, but I don't want to put it in stainless because I want it to continue. Right. <laughs> but the software, you really need to like harvest this and put it in And I adore this man, so I got to be careful. But, you know, I'm like, but that's not going to work for my plans, right? You know, right. I need to know in my head, I want that those barrels to keep going because I know I'm only going to pull, sometimes I'll pull just three to four gallons of those types of crazy, funky barrels. Mm -hmm. You know, because like I said, vanilla extract in a cake, it'll shift a whole, that's reason you have to be careful too because you can really take it too far. Sure. You can get, I, I'm thinking if you take too much out of it, um, particularly depending on how the barrel is being stored, if it's upright on its side, you can have a big difference in oxidation and... Um, Yes. Air service. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And when I'm talking about the temperature on corn, too, I'm really specifically talking about heirloom corn and my mm -hmm. personal experience, right? You know, sure. when I'm working with them, right? Everybody has their, just like I said, everybody's got their own recipe. Yellow Dunt doesn't have the same problems, you know, because they're, I don't know, for whatever reason, or that, or we're just accustomed to what the flavors are. Possible. Uh, yeah, I think about, I mean, there's still mm -hmm. some times where you go to, I don't know, a fast food restaurant or somewhere where you're getting something fried in particular. Yes. And, you can kind of tell when an oil has gone too far and it's like, okay, I think that's uh -huh. a little burnt. There's some little acrid in there, yeah. but yeah, before, um, yeah. before hearing you mention about that craft bourbon note, I guess I'd had two streams of thought that went into it. One being that you're right, mm -hmm. that there is a craft bourbon note. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it's defined by the person for sure mm -hmm. as to what they do or don't like about it, but there's something identifiably that's not heritage brand. It's not, even some of the newer distilleries that are kind mm -hmm. of heritage style, mm -hmm. uh, but is something very different. And it's, it does come across and some people like it. Some people hate it. And for me, it kind of depends on the rest of the product. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I was thinking about too, was that uh, in interviewing and reading, I'd heard the only note that 100% cannot be blended out unless you're talking the thousands mm -hmm. and thousands of barrels is mustiness. So if you get bad, like you said, mm -hmm. bad in, bad out. So if you get a bad batch of grain and you don't screen that out, you're going to have musty bourbon or musty whiskey, and that's, you can't get rid of that note. Yeah. So yeah. I, that's why I want to ask. No, I like old, like old Rickhouse note. And when I say craft bourbon, too, I love craft bourbon. I mean, that's how I came up, right? You know, yep. but at the same time, there, you know, we've definitely been around long enough that there's, you know, people are falling into different, different patterns with things. But sure. um some of the mustiness, if it's like grandma, grandma's basement mustiness, I don't always mm. hate it. And I actually like to blend those. Um, but there is the, um, the damp slimy thing. That's not good. Yeah. No, <laughs> totally agreed. Yeah. I tried something recently that I, I identified as having an old workhouse note. Like when you yeah. go to the very back of a workhouse yeah. barrels that haven't been touched or visited mm -hmm. in years right. and you almost hear voices coming out from the barrels like, I'm out here. Like, you know, come, <laughs> And the ones that have fungus growing on exactly, them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I and because I do what I do, they're not merchantable, but they're fun to drink, right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, no one's gonna, well, I'm, I might because I know some of those barrels are real bangers, mm -hmm. but uh, most people are gonna look at them, it's got fungus on it, I don't want that barrel, right. or it doesn't look shiny, or 
Yeah, I, yeah. I think we're all going to end up, you know, eventually, if we're not already, missing some of those brick houses with the dirt floors in them because they're such, mm. you know, those barrels are such sponges for all of that. Now, mm. you know, we're m making much more efficient brick houses and things, but with concrete floors and, you know, and proper windows and all those sorts of things. And, um, mm. you know, we're it's going to balance what we gain for what we lose, but... I, I like that. I like that in red wine too. I like that forest floor funk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah little, what do they use? Petrichor is a big note on that. Um, that's one of those words that I found came about only because when, you know, when you're writing a review for a uh, magazine, okay. let's say whiskey magazine, right. or whiskey advocate, you have only 80 words or so. So the smell of earth after rain is six and petrichor is one. And so that's why they use it. Um, instead of yeah. an almond paste, sugared almond paste, right. that's how you get marzipan. Marzipan, right. So, um, that's why it's worth looking up these words because it's right. really it, it's they're not always trying to yes. hide something or right. you know deceive. Right. It's sometimes it's just I got eighty words I got to cut somewhere. With so with the uh, heirloom corn question, mm -hmm. um, it kind of leads me into the next segment that I want to talk about, which was your time at Widow Jane. Yes. Um, which for for my mm -hmm. own history, that's where I know you best from, uh, and uh, before we get into mm -hmm. too much of the time there, I wanted to talk about the baby Jane. Yes, of course. So uh, that was a, a distillery exclusive mm -hmm. um, at the at time of tasting or time of taping. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's any left, but I did have a bottle of it. I was very glad to try it. Um, this was a one-year-old bourbon mm -hmm. with a strain that was developed brand new. Yes. And I'd just love to hear about the process that went into creating that. This month's Impact Spotlight is on a new whiskey from Adelphi. McLean's Nose. A new blended scotch whiskey, expertly crafted to have a West Coast character, with both a high malt content at 70% and a high proportion of ex-sherry casks. McLean's nose is both a nod to Ardenmarket's rugged western peninsula home, with its beautiful landmark on the south coast of the peninsula, and as an homage to the long mentorship they've received from Mr. Charles McLean. McLean is an undisputed legend, affectionately referred to as the Chief Nose, since 1993, when the Adelphi name was revived as an independent bottler by Jamie Walker. Bottled at a super approachable 46% ABV, this is the perfect dram to sip while reading one of Charlie's acclaimed books. At an even more approachable $35 a bottle, this is a must-buy, especially for those of us who, much as we must love bourbon, are going to be fully bourboned out by the end of this month. Join me in the dram, and look for McLean's nose in your favorite whiskey shop near you. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Yeah, I got, you know, one of the reasons I just got lucky with Widow Jane, right? I ha mm. um, Samson and Surrey was my third client when I went out on my own mm. um, with my consulting business and then dissolved it because of Widow Jane, right? <laughs> you know, when they asked me to come on full time, um, I'm still in love with that project. That team there, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of emotionally attached to. In fact, I saw just three of the production people recently because they had meetings at Heaven Hill. So we, we met for lunch and it will always just be, you know, nothing but um, that team and some crazy fond memories, right? I mean, not that we didn't have our days. You can't have the dark without the light, right? But sure. I never, that project... You know, when I first got approached by it, I was asked, like, you know, we need somebody up in New York. I'm like, I'm not moving to New York because I have too much to learn in Kentucky. You mm -hmm. know, it's like I need to be here because this is where I'm learning. Right? right. And then I get up there and things just keep happening. And you see 
you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So one of the things that happened was I inherited the Baby Jane corn. I did not develop that, right? The team previous with the previous owner had developed that mm -hmm. and um, had worked for five years to get the, you know, a pure yeast or a pure yeast, a pure seed strain. And when I got there, they had not a huge amount, but maybe 30,000 bushels of corn and they were getting ready to destroy it because it had some age on it, but it was the baby Jane. And I'm like, oh, don't do that yet. Let me go. And so I go to the silos and out in the countryside and to go to the silos, they're immaculate. That was the first corn that had ever been put in them. There wasn't a stray kernel of corn on this. You know, the way that they were managing this property was just beautiful. And so we plug sampled it. It was just so sound. So, you know, I called the owners. I'm like, let's take it back to Kentucky or try to find some place to distill it. But it made more sense. Let's like right now. We'll... So it was a whole coincidence thing. But my mentor was also working on the project. We didn't know. We were talking at lunch one day. Mm -hmm. We had different, you know, we're talking about clients privately, but we're not revealing names, you mm -hmm. know, what some situations are. He calls me about three weeks later, goes, Lisa, we're working for the same people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's amazing. And, um. So anyway, so he made the early arrangements to bring that back. We did a trial run at one of the distilleries here, in, smaller distilleries here in Kentucky, and it came out that was very favorable. Um, so we knew that we needed to continue to grow that corn, and but needed to scale it up. So we took the rest of what was out there. Unfortunately, you know, my connections here, you know, I know the ag, the ag haulers and things like that. I'm like, hey, Jeff, can you bail me out? Can you run to, can you run out east and pick up some corn and and. Um, so we brought that back. We ran it then at two different distilleries, um, put those barrels down, and then during this time knew that we needed to identify a larger place, and that ended up being Castle and Key. And then we needed to blow the corn crop up. Um, I'd have been approached when I was on a project here in Kentucky by Peterson Farms about possibly doing some heirloom corn by their agronomist Scott. Mm -hmm. And so I called Bernard Peterson. I'm like, I know I'm in New York now, but you know, I'm still in Kentucky, and we need to blow this project up. We had a um, I found a farmer, a grower in upstate New York, and so he was growing everything that we were producing in New York. Okay. So that was all New York to New York. Uh, Pennsylvania, still some seed corn, New York, Pennsylvania seed corn, because we needed it in two states. And, you know, as I always say, hail, locust, or acts of God, right? You know, you, can, you could lose your whole seed corn crop, right? So you need right. to grow that um, um, away from each other. And then, so Kentucky, you know, and so Bernard's like, let me come out. I'm coming out to New York. My daughter lives there. My wife and I are coming out. They come to the distillery in 10 minutes. And he said, I got to talk to the rest of my family, but I think we're going to grow your corn for you. And like, okay. And so for two years before COVID, and I don't know if we kind of lost, COVID messed everything up, right? You know, turned everything upside down. Um, but we had the largest heirloom corn crop for whiskey in the United States. And Bernard just lives here in, Bar in Bardstown, right? You know, and we've spoken on a couple panels together now. And, um, um, you know, you got to love a guy that pulls up and yells at, pulls up in front of your house, yells at you, and then start talking to you, goes, oh, by the way, and hands you a bottle of whiskey out of his back seat, right? <laughs> one of the reasons I love Bardstown, but... It's not a um, bad perk of the location. No, no. Yeah. So we had great success with it, but, you know, we learned a lot. We learned a lot about handling heirloom corn on a, a large scale, mm -hmm. you know, before I'd only worked out of super sacks before, and so I had never worked out of trucks. Mm -hmm. um, we learned a lot. Um, Castle and Key learned a lot, you know, did I have to pay to replace their rollers on their mil roller mill? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, because, you know, the corn has to be harvested a lot lower. It's picking them up a lot more debris. So we're finding out that it has to be cleaned twice, not once, you know, but all these things, right? And the corn standards for the industry with Yellow Denton had been written in 1942 by Seagram's. Mm -hmm. And they haven't been changed because they don't need to be, right? You know, one of the things that entertains me the most is in the old Seagram's manual. It says in the beginning, it's like so much is happening in distilling. You know, this manual is going to be obsolete in no time. And it's not. It's still Mm -hmm. the Bible, right? It's Mm -hmm. still, you know, it's still a text that all of us run to an occasion but um yeah so you know we learned a lot we've learned a lot and um i got you know i just got fortunate too that when i started a limestone branch we were using an heirloom corn you know huber we were using heirloom corn that was growing on grown on site um limestone branch it was across this across the road you know and people come in and like what's wrong with that corn over there <laughs> Yeah, Bernard Peterson said he didn't know so many people were watching his crop until he started growing heirloom corn, and people were like, "There's something wrong with your corn," <laughs> you know, because it's all not uniform, and sure. you yeah. know, it's kind of all over the place, and the stalks are different sizes. But when they plant heirloom corn next to yellow dent, the wild turkeys and deer will eat the heirloom corn and leave the yellow dent alone because it tastes better. I fully believe that. Yeah, I'm sure I've heard that before too, but I, I hearing it again. I absolutely believe that. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's like an heirloom tomato. They're delicious. They're hard to ship, though, right? You can't, they, they right. deteriorate too fast, but there's so much more flavor and character in them. But, you know, and I've, as I've said before, too, so when, when you're working with heirloom corn, mm-hmm. it's the flavor grain. You know, it's not like you, you don't want to approach an heirloom corn whiskey and go, okay, well, is this, you know, high rye or is this weeded or whatever? It's right. like those are the those supporting grains need to stay in the background with that with yellow dent it needs they need to be the flavor grains right but with heirloom corn heirloom corn's the flavor grain right you would in my opinion right yeah i mean i would i would tend to agree i mean i'm sure there there's always exceptions to things of course but yeah i would think if you're making a rye for example and you need some corn in there you're not going to put an heirloom corn in there because you're making a rye the the point is to have right or if you do, it's going to be something that's not, you know, it's going to be an heirloom white or something that's simple and not right. not got a lot of complex flavors in it. Exactly. It's going to be more for other aspects mm-hmm. than that strong right. flavor, for sure. Uh, but yeah, the, I, I really loved the Baby Jane. It was something, again, different. It was mm-hmm. new. Um, I think it had uh, a craft note to it, but it was more, it wasn't the it wasn't the burnt oil. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that. It was more just because it was still young. It was, yeah. um, I'd say, I believe it was a year old. Yes, and that was intentional because uh, we wanted people to get their heads around. I mean, that was already being done. Mm -hmm. And when I started, you know, the owners of Samson and Surrey, like, asked my opinion on what needed, which skews needed to go, which skews needed to stay. And I said, I think it's important with the baby Jane. Number one, it's good. But number two, people, you know, number two, people are always surprised it's only a year old. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also it tells our story while we're putting barrels down to sit on. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, OK, well, here's what we're talking about. Right. Yeah. You know, just imagine this with a few more years on it. And we've seen a couple of brands do that. And I, I love when they do. Mm-hmm. Um, the most recent one that I was talking to is not American. It's uh, uh, Scottish, Art American. Yes. And um, they did that with their new make and then with their one and two year old spirit because you know in scotland it can't be called a scottish whiskey unless it's three years mm-hmm. and one day old but so they were able to sell it as spirit younger than that to tell people okay this is the character you're going to get from a it's a whiskey that's the westernmost point of the of the british mainland it's a, a blend of unpeated and peated yeah. malt and then it's drawn down with uh peated water that comes out of the hills it's like mm-hmm. yellow that comes out it's somehow it 
but it has that peat flavor in the water. So you want to see how the development goes over the course of the new month. Oh, I love this. Phase. I don't know this story, but I love this. It's, yeah. It's really fantastic. Um, and uh, as of recording, I think they're going to be not next week's episode, what? but two weeks from now. We'll be out with them. Uh, great conversation with Jenny from them. And the Scottish distillers are doing a lot of things like that. And Irish, I should say, for Waterford as well. Yes. Are yes. doing so much exploration. And yes. it's a lot of fun to, to just watch that, read the science, read yeah. the reviews. And I'm fortunate I get to try some of these things. So it's great. With um, So continuing along with the, the Widow Jane theme for the moment, uh, I'm figuring out how to kind of phrase this question. And I ended up just kind of keeping it simple. And I think in my mind, when you joined Widow Jane, one of the biggest obstacles or challenges, mm-hmm. if you want, that you had was uh, reputation mm-hmm. um, and just coming in knowing that that reputation was there. And I don't want to go into the, the background mm-hmm. of that too much. It was more about when you're coming in as a new person, as mm-hmm. you know, distilling and blending and eventually became um, CEO or president. I always mix president. up. The, president. Okay, mm-hmm. was president there. Uh, so through a, in interviews and podcasts, you've said one of your main jobs, if not the main job, was just professionalization. Mm-hmm. And that meant everything from brewers to distillers who were caring for the yeast. Between when you joined mm-hmm. and uh, when you left Widow Jane, what do you think worked the best? What ended up not working so well? Um, putting out a polished product. Putting out mm-hmm. a consistent... Po- now, I don't mean consistent in flavor because, you know, we're, I was blending every... 10, 10 year batch. Uh, I won't, I won't call her out on this, but she told me, she's like, uh, there, there's a very well-known um, female master distiller. And she's like, and she talked to another male master distiller and she's like, oh, she's not blending every one of them. goes, he goes, no, she's blending every last one of those. But, you know, in anticipation when I knew, you know, my heart was telling me it's time to come back to Kentucky. I um, started working with a team. Also there was the, um, if Lisa gets hit by a bus, plan right you know it's right. like right so so and they're doing which, a fabulous which in new job. york i mean yes yeah. and i'm so proud of every last one of them because they're their own people and they're doing their own thing and it's lovely to see them continue sweat over the blends like mm. i did you know and so you know it's like it's it, but it's wonderful they've come so far and um they're they're immensely talented so you know i've had a couple comments like well if you're there is who's going to be doing the blending i'm like don't worry about the blending i started this team and they're fabulous right mm-hmm. and um yeah so um putting out a polished product um you know they didn't don't chill filter mm-hmm. and i was asked to keep that but it's also at 91 proof thank you for that so and and uh but the nerds in us know that it needs to be 92 proof to not be chill filtered or you're still going to have haze in the product under 92 and so it's 91 i'm told to keep that i'm told to not chill filter um and then we're using this crazy mine water Mm. and you know people ask me like does it make a difference i'm like yeah do you taste a perrier let a perrier go flat oh so i'm not supposed to use the brand name famous mineral water in a green bottle (laughs) let it go flat and taste it against you know distilled water or our reverse osmosis water and you'll you know the reason we buy that and drink it is because the minerality and the minerals right it's delicious right and Mm -hmm. and so it actually enhances the whiskey especially it's but it makes widow jane widow jane right and Mm -hmm. so um it was essential to do that but guess what putting something high in magnesium and calcium wants to cause it to look like a snow globe Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
So, you know, working through that to figure out, because they had some issues with that, you know, before I got there was cloudiness and floaties and all kinds of things. And so we got to a place where we could do a polished, non-chill filtered 91 proof. So if I'm proud of anything, that's just I could, could, you know, that's that was because I thought I was going to get fired before I got hired because I was just like laying awake at night going, what next? Okay, I've tried this. I've tried this. What's, you know, and like I told you, I took the filtration course at UC Davis. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, well, you know, go back to my notes. I pull all my notebooks out. I'm like, oh my gosh. And uh, finally, one night I woke up and I'm like, ah, I think I, I, I'm thinking about another product, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, wonder what they do about that product. And it was, it's in the wine category. And it's like, mm -hmm. And sure enough, I looked it up, called the guys, had them sent the, the filtration media for that. And we put, and basically polishing the wine rather than filtering, or f polishing the whiskey rather than filtering the whiskey. So um, that reputation, yeah, you know, it was, um, we had to suffer through some. That's like, no, we've changed what we're doing. We've changed our ways. But that kind of bad information will follow you around for a long time. And unfortunately, you know, some of it had been requoted after I'd started and re, you know, dug back up again. And and you can't do anything but just let it happen. You know, let it fall away organically. Um, you know, I was having having dinner with maybe the same same famous female master distiller and we're talking about things and i told her i said thank you because she had to she literally pulled a guy out of my face when we were in, in pittsburgh for american craft spirits association convention she didn't remember this but the guy was really drunk we're all walking down the street together he finds out i'm with widow jane and he's in my face and saying you know you guys are a bunch of liars and you mm -hmm. know and and going through a whole stream of profanity and some of it was well deserved for the brand previous to you know the samson and surrey acquisition right mm -hmm. and so but she kept saying just give lisa a chance give her a chance you know just give her a chance but she literally and i told her i said thank you for that because i'm thinking that night i'm like what have i done <laughs> You know, sure. and, you know, and like I said, we, you know, we had some other distillers in New York and, you know, and rightfully so, you know, I, I'm another distiller. I get to the New York State Distillers Guild board for meeting for the first time and he's got his arms crossed across his chest and he's like, Paul Helco from Few says to give you a chance. So like I told Paul later, I'm like, thank you for telling you. And so the first day people kept finding I was from Widow Jane, right? And very standoffish. The second day I go in and there's an empty table and I sit down and it's like the junior high lunch table, right? And all of a sudden one distiller, he comes and sits to my left and another distiller, he comes and sits to my right. And the other distiller, he sits across from me and I'm still friends with all of them, you know? But, you know, there was certainly a, a curve on trying to clean up the reputation of Widow Jane. Transparency is all it took. You know, it's really interesting because there were some stories that were told that I couldn't figure even figure out why they were told because if you told the real story, it was actually more interesting than the fabricated one, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't know why all that happened, but, you know, like, how are we going to fix this? We'll stick a grandma in as the distiller and <laughs> we'll see, see what happens, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm glad to, I, I'm glad that that question kind of went over okay. But, again, it's something that I think about. It's one I definitely mm -hmm. wanted to ask, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the reputation has come so far. Oh, yeah. And it's also worth keeping in mind and mentioning that it's not like, let's say, when um, uh, Coke changed their recipe, whenever that happened, and mm -hmm. everyone was like, oh, my God, no, go back to the old Coke. And in theory, as big as they are, they could put out the old recipe the next day. They just change it up, put it right back. With the whiskey and with blending, even, then it takes time. Mm -hmm. So 
I would imagine that when you started, you still had to work with, with stocks and with blends that had already been made that uh, it was, had to be All of Widow Jane was a single barrel before I got there. Oh, okay. So I didn't know. Yeah. yeah. And so the blending was something that I was tasked with doing right when I was yeah. hired. And so the owners of Samson in Surrey, I mean, they just had a vision for Widow Jane. And, hmm. um, you know, I have to give them so much credit for, you know, being the... They were like the admiral. I was the captain of the ship, right? And... Hmm. Um, um, but they would ask me things, but they would also listen when like, yeah, let's try this. Let's go with it. Or I'm going to try this for you, but I don't think it's going to work. And here's why. And so sometimes they'd want me to go ahead and push forward with those projects. Another time, like, okay, your collective experience is telling us that that's a waste of our resources right now. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I did enjoy working with them very, very much. And Heaven Hill was fabulous, you know, during the transition, I just needed to come home. Right. And, um, um, yeah, but, you know, they, they had a vision and they knew what they wanted. And, but, like I said, they would let, you know, like, gave me the decision on which SKUs to eliminate. You know, because I got there and there were, I don't remember. I'm going to, I want to say, like, 19. And I'm like, am I exaggerating that? But I'm not absolutely sure I am. You know, it was, there was just a lot of SKUs. And it's not unlike a lot of craft distilleries. And, I mean, in early Widow Jane's defense, sure. you're trying to work on cash flow product and what's going to stick. You know, you got to try all of it, right? Because you don't know. Are you going to be known for your chocolate rum? Are you going to be known for this? Are you going to be known for that, right? And yep. so, um, especially when you're sourcing stock and, you know, sending it out as single barrels, it's like, okay, what else are we going to do for cash flow right now? You mm -hmm. know, and get our name out there. And so, um, you know, but they were making um, heirloom whiskey out of all different grains. But that's great that they did that because they went through and, you know, we discovered which ones weren't going to be merchantable. Right. <laughs> I think that just reminded me of I think of uh, of Black Button in in Rochester where they've done so much to Jason's a friend. Yes, so I spoke to Jason <laughs> recently. Uh, yeah, and actually this is he's one of the he's one of the yeah, yeah. he's one of the um, New York distillers that have just done nothing but treat me really well. Yeah, That's good. Yeah, and yeah. I'm so grateful he's still a friend of mine. And they um, I should note this is an announcement I'll make on the podcast actually because it'll kick yeah. in I think the episode yeah. after this. Um, Black Button is now a sponsor of the podcast, and I'm thrilled to have them on. Uh, they were on an early episode to talk about Black Button itself, and then I had Jason Yay, on to Jason. talk. Jason, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Just recently I had him on to talk more about his new, um, it's not new anymore, I guess, right. but his barrel brokerage right. work. Right, oh, right, all right. Because uh, I hadn't yeah. talked about that yet mm -hmm. on the podcast. So, um, yes, they've been uh, amazing to talk to, but I think about it, and it's like they have such great whiskeys and bourbons, and they're yeah. doing so much with heirloom and with uh, the farmer, the farmers up there. Um, and yet, still, their main seller, over 50% mm -hmm. of their sales, comes from, a volume at least, comes from the bourbon cream. Yes, I know. Yeah. Well, because you've you got to have cash flow product. And that's how flow, I'm, yeah. if I establish my way, myself anyway, and in in my value in the industry is the fact that I can whip up cash flow product. Right? It, it, look, it's important. It's <laughs> you know, some people look at me and they still, like, you can see the grimace on their face when you're like, oh, yeah, I used to make this and this and this. And, like, and I'm like, oh, I developed that. And you could just see them, like, cringe. And, like, it was cash flow product. And I am very proud of it, right? It's what I was tasked to do by the owners or, the, or the, my bosses, you know. And it's like, no matter where I've been, I've done cash flow product. And it's important, you know. You need it. There, yeah. there are very few outfits that can start up and just wait three years oh no i've had you know i've i've, I've been i've had brand a brand, one brand in particular tell me like we're not going to ever release anything but aged whiskey i'm like mm -hmm. and i'm thinking mm -hmm. wow they must have a brilliant brilliant and we're not going to source 
but we're also going to just make whiskey and then we're going to wait on it. Right. Mm. And I'm like, gosh, they must have a brilliant business plan that I can't even like my brains can't even get around to, to think that this is a good idea. And then next thing you know, they've got gin, they've got vodka. They've mm. <laughs> exactly. It's like cash. It's, 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 it's a financial requirement, you know, it's not even like, a, you know, like a, whether you were really talking about spirits or not, it's just a reality. Yeah. You know, and you got to go in and realize. And so when a Jane, we were fortunate that the 10 year old took off. Right. And mm-hmm. so oddly enough, the 10 year, you know, turned out to be the cash flow product. Who knew, you know, and. Um, not a bad cash flow product. No, no, you know, and that's part of the reason I went with them because at first I had told them, no, I'm not moving to New York. Right. Mm. And then, um, one of the owners, he fly, he's like, uh, he calls me and he's like, I'm going to fly out to Kentucky and take you to dinner. I really need to talk to you. And so he knows he knew in person, he was charming and he was going to tell me that he was sitting on a really fabulous pile of stock. Mm. (laughs) Somebody must've told him, just tell her what whiskey you're sitting on. She'll be, you know, she'll, she'll change her mind. And, and um, sure enough, it's like, oh, my gosh. And he told me what his vision was about, you know, blending across states. And um, he's like, are you willing to, you know, give it a go? I'm like, yeah, I am. And, you know, a few months into it, they um, asked me to dismiss my other clients and come on full time. And I did that. And then um, was vice president over distilling for all the brands in the Samson and portfolio. But that only lasted six months because I was a widow Jane 100 percent. I go down, you know, I went to Philadelphia and, and I think I went a few once or something like that. But it just, the, the, you know, all the time needed to be poured into Widow Jane because the brand was starting to show rumblings of taking off at that mm-hmm. point in time. And then COVID hit and it's like, we, the brand just went wild, right? It just right. went crazy. As New York, we got lucky in New York with COVID. Not mm-hmm. every state got this, but we were able to uh, get some DTC laws yes. in place. Yes. Um, stronger DTC laws, I should say. Because yes. you used to be able to, if you made their own the product on site you could yes. still send it within new york right. but that got expanded unfortunately it's been yeah. rolled back a bit now but right. a dear friend good. of mine he's been behind a lot of that yeah. you probably know him brian Fakay. yeah brian's brian's should be credited out in public about getting he has been the muscle behind a lot of that yeah he he did it was a phenomenal move. work during covid phenomenal yeah. work yeah it was a brilliant move it really helped a lot of brands mm-hmm. survive let alone yeah. the ones that thrived like widow jane yes and uh we we now have even more of an explosion of whiskey in the Hudson Valley and in the entirety of New York yes. because those brands survived. Yes. So I agree. I would definitely yeah. give them some credit. I was just up there on a consulting gig. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot tell you where, but I was just one of them. So uh, with the last question mm-hmm. regarding Widow Jane, but really more than just Widow Jane, taking your career in Toto, You've also had a unique experience in being not just master distiller, distiller, blender, but also president at Widow Jane. And we've never really talked about the business side of the industry uh, or being on the business Mm -hmm. side, I guess. And going from a history where you've been distilling and blending and on the production side more so, let's say, how did you adjust to having to deal with things like payroll and cash flow and... (laughs) All of that. Yeah. Um, actually, okay. Um, it, it, you know, it all, it's all, it all feeds into each other, right? You know, it's the whole network. And so when you meet people in the industry, you have as much respect for people, you know, 
I'm so production focused, right? Mm -hmm. But you have just as much respect for people that have been in HR a really long time or they've been in finance for a really long time. I told the CFO recently that was, um, you know, we're having a discussion. I'm like, no, you know your math, but do you know whiskey math? <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, my, one of my former bosses said to me one day, he goes, you're really good at math. I said, I'm not good at math. I'm good at whiskey math. Right. And so it, it's all the same, but completely different. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, you're looking for different things. You know, people like during COVID, it's like, are you letting your employees work remotely? I'm like, they can't work remotely. We're putting, we're blending whiskey and drawing down barrels and putting it in the bottle and getting it out the door. Um, yeah, it's been a challenge, um, but at the same time, it's been really rewarding. You know, you you um, get, getting through some HR issues have been interesting, but I'm older, and, you know, I think it would have been a lot more difficult when I was young, um, but, you know, you can, I'm at a place where I can look at a bigger picture and um, say the hard things. There was a time that I couldn't have said the hard things, and I can say the hard things now. Um, yeah, but you know, and it takes a village and you know, there's always somebody out to reach out to to help you get through whatever, you know, whatever it is you're looking at. But yeah, and it's fascinating too, you know, you're looking at it's it's a game, you know. It's a chess game, right? You're looking at cash flow and what you need to bring on and what needs to go out and um like okay, well we're going to hold up, we have to hold up over here because you know, we got to wait till, you know, there's a little more cash at hand for this project, you know, but let's get enough of this, you know, let's push forward on this even though um, we ha didn't have that in the plans because that's going to help us out. Yeah, it's, you know, so anyway, it's it's a big picture. There's always people available to help you. And um, yeah, yeah, it was, you know, and there's always, you know, always room for a new challenge. But it also made me understand better, um, you know, when like I said, you know, trying to get, get something out, the, all the pieces that have to come together. Because you can get focused in production. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to make the best whiskey at all costs, right? You know, like, and then you're like looking at the numbers like, well, I can't do it at all costs. Right. <laughs> but I'm still going to put out the best whiskey, but I'm going to have to trim some costs, right? Mm -hmm. And where can I trim that? And what can I do here? And how can I help people out? And, you know, and finance comes back to you and like, well, whoa, right? You know, right. Or, or go ahead or, you know. And so there's that ebb and flow of business too because of that, yeah. you know, and it's, it's, um, but it's all essential and it's all critical. So would you say then <clears throat> that for, let's say you're, you're talking to a younger distiller or mm -hmm. blender or just someone up and coming in the industry, title aside, uh, that you would say it's advantageous for them to get some of that business side experience so that they really understand it from, let's say, an, an earlier stage? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, again, right? Um, um, I think that taking any kind of business course, having any kind of basic understanding, I think making sure that you haven't only worked in the distilling industry, you know, get some other experience, right? You know, whether it's just while you're in, even if you're like going to college to just study distilling and going, you know, into distilling, make sure you've got, you've done something else as well, right? Because like I said, you know, I, my, my career has been a little bit of patchwork from all the things that I've done in my past have all come together somehow with whiskey, um, and been an advantage that I've had. Um, um, yeah, that's a really, a really excellent point. <laughs> yeah. But basic, basic understanding, you know, because somebody will come to you and they're like, well, you know, you know, I need to be making more money. Look how much whiskey we're selling. And like, right. But there's overhead and there's 
you know, there's other things out there. It's the big picture. You don't take out of your 401k to buy groceries. Right. You know, so some of those basic types of ideas, right? You know, because mm-hmm. they like, oh, okay, well, all this whiskey's going out the door. So, you know, I'm, I'm like, yeah, but all has to balance. And, but in that is making sure that your employees are treated well mm-hmm. and taken care of, you know? No, it's very, it, it's, it's something I know we're, we'll talk about more in the podcast mm-hmm. in the future. Um, I already mentioned to you, to Lisa off air, I have a couple of people in mind, one in particular, to talk about that. Um, if she's listening, she knows who she is. But uh, with that, I mean, that's a perfect lead into the next question that I had, which was that you, from an outsider's perspective, you have kind of led a two-pronged career, one as um, consultant, one as in-house. Uh, you could also look at it as one side being production, one side being mm-hmm. the business. And, and I think either is a valid way to look at it. But by doing, I mean, just to reiterate, you worked at Limestone Branch, Starlight, mm-hmm. Huber's, Widow Jane, George Washington Distillery of Mount Vernon, Castle and Key um, for a, mm-hmm. a while at um, Pierce Lyons. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot. And Castle of, and Key was all Widow Jane. I mean, that right, was something, yeah, right, right. Right, so, but even working with, with mm-hmm. the company, right. just mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. The, the team that you're working with. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, moving around from distillery to distillery is, is not as uncommon as it used to be. You know, the, as we've said, the old yeah. guard of, of the Russells and the Beams, they'll stay right. literally in some cases until they die. Like, that's where they're going to be the rest of their life. That's their place. But um, it's not, I think for the next generation, it's not the norm anymore. Like, people will move around maybe after even five to ten years but they do move from place to place and they bring with them what they've learned from place to place so um have you know as you've gone through both of those prongs of your career whether you want to look at it in one dichotomy or the other how do you feel that you've managed both of those prongs that you've been able to balance those two and make them work together Oh, interesting question. Um, it's a really interesting question. I have, I mean, somebody asked me when I about when I first started, you know, working in New York, and I said, "Well, here's the thing: once you cross the threshold of a distillery, you're in a distillery. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter where it is. It doesn't matter whether it's in the middle of a cornfield in Kentucky, or, you know, in in the middle of Northern California, or in." the city in New York, right? It's really, you cross the threshold and you're, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Um, they've definitely complemented each other. Uh, you know, I've had the good fortune too, when you go in as a consultant, you know, like, okay, well, I do know how the big guys work. I do know how the medium guys work. I do know how the little guys work from what, not completely in any of them, but I have a general outline and idea, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, the other thing, too, is I th- just like we see in the craft brewing world, we see the influence of craft distilling on the big guys, right? All of a sudden, all of a sudden, they have some of the experimental finishes, and they have some of the experimental mash bills, right? But which is mm-hmm. actually driven, you know, after craft brewing onto craft distilling onto the big guys, right? Mm-hmm. And so being able to bring in that, too, and say, you know what? I know you're a big guy, but uh, I have something happened the year before last, and I was at... 
um, the Beam Institute, right, for distilling. And they have a conference every year, and all the distillers come, craft distillers and big guys and everything. And I got asked to the distillers' luncheon, which I was, you know, it was an honor for me, right? And you're in there with all the big guys. And then there was a panel afterwards, and I'm getting ready to go sit down in the audience. And Connor O'Driscoll, the Heaven Hill distiller, is like, no, Lisa, you're sitting up here, right? And I end up sitting between Harlan Wheatley and Freddie No, and behind me is like Brent Elliott and Denny Potter. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, I am out of my league, right? I'm going to keep my mouth shut during this panel and just listen and take it all in, right? And I had a couple really lovely conversations before the panel started. And um, there were some Irishmen there. And they said, they said, uh, they start asking questions on pot distillation. And then there's silence on the panel. And Connor says, Lisa, you're the only person I think on here that can answer these questions about pot distillation. Off those names, that's probably true. And I'm like... I'm thinking, oh my gosh, okay, now here I am with this plan where I'm just going to keep to my, you know, and just listen and learn, right, you know, and just take in the honor of sitting up there with everybody. Like, okay, well, I got to answer this. So I got, you know, I was really comfortable with the question. And so I'm like, I go off and I start answering it, right? Mm -hmm. And then I looked at them, I said, I did answer your question, like, oh, yeah. And they said, well, who in the U.S. thinks that they're going to, you know, like adapt this and blow it up a little bit more? And like, well, actually, I have a plan in place, but I said, I have to present it to Connor tomorrow. <laughs> and everybody started laughing. And so Connor took me aside afterwards and I told him what it was. He goes, oh my gosh, Lisa, you know, anyway, that was another conversation for another day. But, um, but yeah, so that's where the craft distilling met, you know, or where my consulting and, you know, my day job met. <laughs> Right. Yeah. You know, it was a little bit, it took a little bit from every single project I've ever been to answer those questions. And, um, and I was comfortable, you know, like, you, you know, you talk about imposter syndrome a little bit. It's like, oh, I think I actually know this. I think I know this. That is one of the best feelings. When it you, is. When, I mean, the imposter syndrome, certainly <laughs> not. I, that's that's one of the worst feelings. But right. when you have it and then you're like, oh, no, I actually can answer that's that right. question. That, right. that It's one of the most gratifying things. And yes. I, like I said, I, I would also look at that panel. I think if I were Jimmy Russell, I'd look at that panel and be like, wow, this is a really cool panel right here. And, um, but even so, to just look around and be yeah. like, no, I'm the one with the answer. That's an awesome yeah. Yeah. part of the story. Right. Just, yeah, that's, that's there was this, there was I mean there was definitely some hesitation and a moment of panic when I was sitting there I mean, relaxed. We're, just, we're only like, human. I mean, there's... <laughs> yeah. so I think you're going to have to answer this question. Like, oh, no. <laughs> I, no, I mean, that, that's... No, I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, there are, of course, many other yeah. questions to to ask and to go through. But um, for this one, I wanted to just end on. I know you're uh, clo- you've closed out one chapter and entering a new one. Um, I know can't tell us what mm-hmm. which uh, your new venture is quite yet. But um, just wanted to mention you have left Pierce Lions mm-hmm. distilling and. I always forget the exact... Town branch, Town, yeah. It was yeah, Town, okay. Yeah, and Altec, yeah. And Altec, yes. So um, you have left there yet, but you are moving on to a new experience. I am. I'm very excited. Yeah. I'm very excited. Um, yeah, the industry just continues to grow and then continue to grow opportunities. And, um, you know, had a couple conversations here and there on the side. And then this appeared and it was like, oh my gosh, this is this is remarkable. And this is what I want. And uh, I'm going to be given a lot of freedom um, and it's going to be playtime and no more CEOing. I, I, one thing I identified in myself and like, you know what I ha- at this point in my career and in my life and at my age, I just want to focus on the whiskey 
and the you know whiskey marketing education you know, I really love teaching master classes. I really love teaching blending, you know, classes, those sorts of things. And I'm going to have the opportunity to do that with this new position. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and listeners, I know only audio, you're only going to hear this, but um, she was smiling through that whole thing. And you could tell <laughs> how excited Lisa is for this. Yeah. So um, when the news is announced, I'll be sure to post about it. Yes. So you all know. But in the meantime, Lisa... Thank you again for inviting me into your home to record this incredible special episode on you know three blocks away from the grounds of the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. Um, and this has just been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for coming on. Yeah, and I feel the same. I'm very grateful that we finally get to meet face to face. So I appreciate the opportunity very much. Absolutely. So uh, as always, you can find uh, Whiskering Podcast on all the social medias. Listen to the end roll for more information on that. And we will, again, post information when Lisa's next venture becomes public and can't wait to do so. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to like and subscribe, leave reviews and ratings where you can. And I will talk to you next week. Hey, folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskey Ring podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or Email me at david at whiskeymywedderingcom with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedding That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume Under the Influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.